And if you don't learn the truth when you're young, you live the lie for a lifetime. And if you're one of the purveyors of the lie, you can get away with it. But if you're on the receiving end of the lie, then that becomes your life and your life lives the lie. True North World podcast is an international collection of individuals who've acknowledged their passion and are walking their paths. We provide personal development tools to help people live their best lives and perform at their peak. I have admired you for years. I grew up with you and your work. And the interesting thing is that my son is now reading about you in his psychology books over here in the Netherlands. Oh. How cool is that? <laughs> That's really cool. That's really, I hope they're telling the truth is all. Well, apparently it's, it's just your, your video, their documentary. They had to watch the brown eyes, blue eyes exercise and discuss it in class. So I don't, I think right. it's, I think it's unadulterated. I'll put it to you that way. Okay. Okay. All right. That's good. Yeah. So I'm. Can you see me? I don't know why you can't. Can you see me at all? I can't see you. I wish I could, though. Well, I do too. I don't know why that's happening. Let's try that. Okay. Let's see. There you go. There we are. There we are. How lovely is that? <laughs> well, now... I don't know what's lovely. It's not so lovely to see it. I was just outside, <laughs> and it's raining. I was. We have a little church turned into a into a guest house next door. Oh. And I was showing it to some people. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm a mess. Oh, well, that's okay. So let's do the questions. I don't care how you describe me. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I have to say this to you. Welcome to the True North right. podcast. That's very important that you know that we only have icons on our podcast. So there you go. Okay. First, okay. first things right. first. First things first. I know about your experience and I know about your experiments, but I'm teaching here in the Netherlands. And I have to tell you this so that you have some context. Only in the past three or four weeks, due to the execution of George Floyd, have the Dutch people gone into the streets and started to really question their institutions. They've had sort of um, demonstrations and, and things like that. The institutions are really starting to rethink things. And I don't know how much you know or are maybe familiar with Dutch culture, like modern culture, but it's a it's a very racist culture as well. I don't know if that if you're familiar with that. Perhaps you've done your ex, your experiments here as well. I don't know. I've done the exercise. No, I haven't done it in Netherlands. I don't believe I've done it in Netherlands. Okay. Oh, but but there's a woman in Netherlands who does it regularly, and she's done it with the police force. Oh, really? Her name is Shida Berman something. Okay. Shida Berman, S E Y D A. You look her up. She is she does that regularly. Okay. I trained her in the Nether I trained her in the Netherlands many years ago and she and her partner, her, her associate, are doing the exercise in Netherlands. Okay. With police departments. I had no idea. Okay. I, I didn't know that. I think her I, I think her last name is Berman Ketzel, K E S A L. K E T S A L, I think is her last name. Okay. Perfect. Lovely. I will definitely look that up. So here's the thing. 
I have a lot of students in front of me who don't know anything about the context of the United States. I teach at an art school in a photography department, and I found myself teaching online a few weeks ago due to COVID and whatnot, and then the George Floyd situation happened. So the students were already under stress from COVID, already feeling agitated, anxious, all those things. The George Floyd execution on top of it destabilized many of them. I wasn't surprised by it. But my colleagues were unable to handle it. They had never seen anything like it. They didn't have any experience with it. So, and this is important for you to know, they did nothing. They didn't respond to it. They didn't send the kids emails because they weren't sure what to do. So I sent an email to my colleagues and I sent an email to my students. And my point was to tell my colleagues, we have to do something. We have to give the framework to the students. They're looking to us for leadership. They don't know how to do this. What I realized in that is that my colleagues who are all European Dutch had zero idea what to say, where to start, how to educate themselves, etc., etc. And you know that I've been reaching out to you for, for nine months, since January, because I was hired at the school in October, and I'm the first person of African descent to teach at the school in 363 years, and the school is 363 years old. So I thought... I'm going to put together some kind of a program and sort of uh, make it possible for people to start learning about themselves because it's not what you call, you know, in the States, we used to call it a black problem. They used to say that in the 70s and the 80s. It's not a, a black problem. It's um, of white concern. And I think that's the problem. So the European people here in the Netherlands don't understand where to start. So I thought, all right, I got to reach out for the big guns. Where's Jane Elliott? So that's why I've been reaching out to you for the past seven months. And and then look at us now. And that's what I said to you in my last email. Look at us now. So can you just walk us through what you do? Because I'm going to have to play this podcast for my students. They don't understand your work. So imagine that you're talking to someone who doesn't understand your work. What do you do and why do you do it? Okay. Here's what I do. I separate groups of people of any age according to the color of their eyes. I put brown-eyed people on the top and blue-eyed people on the bottom. When I do it with, head, with corporations <coughs> or with college or high school students, I don't reverse the exercise. When I do it with little kids, third graders, junior high students, I reverse the exercise the second day. The first day, the brown-eyed people are on the top. I put the brown-eyed people on the top deliberately because... In this country, brown-eyed people haven't had, won't have, but will have eventually, power. So the brown-eyed students in the classroom need to know how it feels to have power and to exercise it with no restrictions whatsoever. Blue-eyed people who constitute the most of the people in the United States, most of the people right now in the United States are what we call white. They aren't white. None of us are white. You can see the color of my shirt. It's white. You can see my skin and compare the two. You know that my hair is white, my shirt's white, my skin is not. There is no such thing as a white person on the face of the earth. And those of you who say, well, we don't have any blacks in our community, you're wrong because every human being on the face of the earth is a descendant of those first modern human beings who evolved in sub-Saharan Africa between 300,000 and 500,000 years ago. And if any Dutch person would trace their DNA back as far as they could trace it, 
they would find that there's a percentage of their DNA that comes from a country in Africa because there's only one race on the face of the earth. And the way you get that message through to them is you separate them according to the color of their, eye, of their eyes. You put brown-eyed people on the top. You put blue-eyed people on the bottom. And then you treat the brown-eyed people the way we treat fair, fair, pale faces in my country and yours. And you treat the blue-eyed students the way we treat students of color. Every pale face knows exactly how to do this exercise. They've been doing it all their lives, but they deny that they're doing it. They will say, I'm not racist. Some of my best friends are black and they will have teachers. I suspect that the Netherlands is getting more diverse now, color wise, unless I'm mistaken, you're getting a lot more people of color it's in true. your country. So now suddenly people are saying they really don't like those black people who are those immigrants who are coming in here. Those refugees don't belong here. Let me tell you something. The only reason there are any white, so-called white people in Netherlands is because those fantastically brilliant black modern human beings left the area of the equator and moved to every to, to populate every landmass on the face of the earth. Every Dutch person has in his background a memory of Africa. So you need to get over that in a hurry. But when, when you do the exercise, those refugees' children are going to be on the top the first day. And the problem with the exercise is the day those kids are on the top, those brown-eyed kids are on the top, and, and if I do it in a center city, those brown-skinned, black-skinned children are going to be on the top. And for the first time, they're going to find out how power feels. And you can never put them back where they were again after they find out how power feels. I found that out with my third graders. I watched the first day I did that exercise. The kids came in. Stephen Armstrong came in and said, hey, Elliot, they shot that king last night. Martin Luther King had been one of our heroes of the month and dead in uh, January, February, February. And he was dead in April at the hands of an assassin. One person didn't kill that man. This society killed that man, just like we killed Malcolm X. So I said, well, we're going to talk about that, Stephen. And so we did the things you have to do first thing in the morning. And then I asked those kids what they knew about black people. They knew every negative thing I'd ever heard. And some of them knew things that I had never heard about black people. I said, look, how do you kids know these things are true? Because my dad said so. Fathers, watch your mouths because your kids will go home, will go to school and repeat what you have said. And then the teacher will know what you are. I said, do you kids have any idea how it would feel to be something other than white in this country? No. Would you like to know? Yeah, yeah. It was like we've already gotten out of spelling and handwriting. Keep this broad talk and we don't have to learn anything all day long. <laughs> kids do that in the school all day long. You know they do it and I know I do it. No matter what grade level you are, if you are teaching at the graduate level, people will come in and start a conversation of their own in order to disrupt, <laughs> not to disrupt, but to distract. You know that. Yeah, I know, I know that. that. And I know how it works. I know so that. So I said, okay, let's find out how it feels to be other than white. Now, everything we had done in at, up to that point in my classroom had been fun. The kids thought it was going to be fun because they had no idea. So I said, okay, today, because I'm blue-eyed and most of the students in this room are blue-eyed, Blue-eyed people are going to be on the bottom the first day. And they said, what does that mean? I said, that means blue-eyed people aren't as smart as brown-eyed people. They aren't as clean as brown-eyed people. They aren't as civilized as brown-eyed people. If you give blue-eyed people something nice, what do they do with it? Immediately, those kids said, they tear it up. One of them said, they wreck things. I said, why is that? Because they got their own color eyes. And at that point, little Debbie sitting in the front row looked up at me and said, how come you're the heat teacher here if you've got them blue eyes? And I thought, there it is. Hmm. There it is. That's what it is right there. That little nine-year-old girl 
feels perfectly secure in confronting me because she's got the right color eyes. Oh my God, is this what goes on with teachers of color in classrooms all over the United States? Are teachers of color treated with less respect than their white counterparts? I was just shocked. And then Alan Moss stood up in the back row and said, Ah, oh, Debbie, you know, if she if she didn't have those blue eyes, she'd be the superintendent. They're the superintendent, the principal. They're both brown eyed. And I thought once again, there it is again. The kid knows how to be a racist. He knows how to separate people. He knows how to treat those who are different. And where did he learn this nonsense? I couldn't believe what I watched in my classroom that year. The first <laughs> I had in my classroom that year four dyslexic boys. They were both. They were all brown eyed. On the day those brown-eyed boys were on the top in that exercise, they read words I knew they couldn't read, and they spelled words I knew they couldn't spell. And at the end of the day, Billy came up to my desk and said, Mrs. Elliott, where's my spelling paper? I said, what do you want it for, Billy? He said, I want to take it and show it to my mother. She thinks I can't spell, and I can. He started to cry, and so did I, because he didn't find out until April 5th of his third grade year that he could spell. Yeah. He had been living down to teachers' expectations of him, and those expectations of him he were, were voiced in the teacher's lounge in the Riceville Community Elementary School. Now, teacher's lounges ought to be closed, or teachers ought to be told not to discuss their kids in uncomplimentary, uncomplimentary ways in the teacher's lounge. On the other hand, I had in my classroom that year, Carol, the Lutheran minister's daughter, came in in February reading at the sixth grade level as a third grader. Okay. She had a steel trap mind. I have never taught a child more brilliant than that one, except until the day she had the wrong color eyes. She came in in February. I taught how to multiply the first 15 minutes of math class. She had never multiplied before. We'd been multiplying for a couple of months. She learned how to multiply in the first 15 minutes of math class. The first day she was in my class, that's how sharp she was, until the day she had the wrong color eyes. And on that day, that girl made mistakes in reading, she made mistakes in spelling, and she forgot how to multiply. She came in from, rest, rest, from recess crying, and I said, what's going on here? As she walked across the playground, two brown-eyed Debbies and a brown-eyed Cindy reached up, one of them reached up, struck her across the back with her forearm, and when Carol turned around, Debbie said to her, now you have to apologize to me for getting in my way, because I'm better than you are. And Carol apologized and came in crying. I thought this is childish behavior, but... Where did they learn that it's all right to treat people who are different from yourself in those ways? So I was frantic about what was happening, and I wanted to stop it at noon. So I went down to the teacher's lounge at noon to share with the other two third-grade teachers what was going on. I walked into the teacher's lounge. There were a number of teachers in the lounge, and they were talking happily. And I started to tell them what was going on in my classroom. On the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, when I had finished, the younger of those two, who was about 52 at the time, said, I don't know how you have time for all that extra stuff. It's all I can do to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, as far as I was concerned, she hadn't taught reading, writing, and arithmetic yet. Reading, writing, and arithmetic yet. She might as well have done the extra stuff. The other one said, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. 62 years old, had been molding young minds for 30 years in that community. And she said on the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed, I don't know why you're doing that. I thought it was about time somebody shot that son of a bitch. And nobody gasped. Nobody did what you just did. Nobody gasped. Nobody was horrified. Nobody was disgusted. Every one of those teachers either smiled or laughed and nodded because she had expressed their feelings perfectly, and as the most senior member of the group, she had the most right to do so. At that moment, that's the moment when I decided that no person will ever leave my presence with those attitudes unchallenged. 
I may not be able to change your attitude, but I can challenge your attitude, and you have to prove to me that pale faces are superior to people of other colors, and you can't do it because it isn't true. Now, if you think that you can prove that to me, there are several things you have to give up if you're going to really be absolutely determined to say that people of color aren't valuable. Give up everything that people of color have made available for you. So number one, give up electricity. Many of the, many of the components for transmitting and generating electricity aren't, were invented by black males. Give up, give up a whole lot of your foods. 50% of the foods on your, in your pantry or on the supermarket shelves came to us from people of color. Give up all cotton clothing because that came from South America and Africa did not come from, didn't come from Southern, Southern um, United States until some black people brought that with them. Give up, give up peanut butter and let me have another peanut butter and jelly sandwich if you're a racist because a man, a black man invented or created or helped to create the process for making peanuts into peanut butter. You'd have to give, you'd have to give up time. You'd have to give up the way we measure time. We got that from the Egyptians. You'll have to give up our mathematics most of our mathematics because we got that from the Egyptians. And now you're saying to yourselves, we're the Egypts in the Middle East. No, it's not. It's a country in Africa. And if you don't believe that, then get Anthony Browder's book, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, and read it. And then tell me that you think that black people aren't as smart as pale faces. If you're going to be a good racist, give up all the things of, that you have because of the contributions of people of color. Every time I pull up to a stop sign, when the red light stops me in Osage, there are four lanes of traffic there, and I'm looking, and here's a big trucker there, <laughs> sitting there, grinding his motor, and I look up at him, and I smile, and I know he thinks I'm thinking how cute he is. That's not what I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking, you fool, if you knew that you were, your behavior right now is being dictated by the invention of a black man, you'd run this light. He just grins at me so happily, and if he knew what he was thinking, he would be furious. He would run that light just because of what I'm thinking. But you see, I know how to mask my disgust. People of color know how to mask their disgust. We know how to get, go along to get along. But in this country today, suddenly now, suddenly, pale faces are seeing what, what black people have been seeing for the last 300 years in this country. We have been enslaving human beings who don't deserve to be enslaved, we have been making money off the bodies of black people that we don't want in our living rooms, except as cleaners and janitors. We have been abusing and misusing people of color in this country for 300 years. We started, we started with the slave trade and we're still doing it. And that's the reason young people are out in the street. And that's the reason pale faces are with them now. Because suddenly, all of a sudden, we see pictures of what black people have been seeing all their lives. This is not something new. Having four cops take down a young black man and beat him to death, or nearly beat him to death, or in this case, strangle him by putting your neck knee on his neck, this is nothing new in this country. And I don't think that it's new in your country, but it's not something you talk about. I've worked in lots of places in the, on the earth, and I haven't found a place where those things don't happen to black people. And if you can find one, I'll be glad to see it. I'll be glad to go there. But if they feel about us, if people of color feel about pale faces, the way pale faces seem to feel about them, 
I won't be safe there. And that's the main fear in this country right now. Everybody in this country is fully aware of the demographics of this country that say that within 30 years, white people, pale-skinned people, pale faces, will be a minority group in the United States of America. And that's the reason we have selected, not elected, but selected a man who is a blatant racist, sexist, ageist, homophobe, ethnocentrist. We have done that because of pale-faced fear. So-called white folks are scared to death that if people get of power, get color, get, if people of color get power, I'm sorry, if people of color get power, they'll want to do to us what we have done to them. And they say that. I go to a meeting, I'm standing up on the on stage, I'm giving my, my, making my remarks, and some liberal pale-faced female says, Mrs. Elliott, don't you think that if they get power, they're not going to want to do to us what we have done to them? Now, this is the very woman who would say, I'm not a racist and I don't know what's happening. But when she says, don't you think if they get power, they'll want to do to us what we have done to them? And she did that at the University of Houston last fall. I think it was last fall. doesn't matter when. And I said, well, let's find out. There are 1,500 people in the auditorium. And uh, Angela Davis was beside me and looking at me like, you're kind of a nut, you know. And I was looking at her and like, you and I both know I'm a nut, but there's a whole mess more of them down here. Let's see if we can educate them. So I said, now, let's see if that's what all black people want. Well, every black person in this room, every person in this room who considers himself or herself a black person who wants to get even with all white folks, please stand. 1,500 people, half of them black, three young black males stood. And the rest of them just turned around and looked at him like, are you crazy? And this white female just looked really, oh, yeah. oh, I said, see, isn't that wonderful? They don't want to get even with all of us. But let's be honest about this. Well, every black person in this room who would like to get even with one or two white people, please stand. They all leaped to their feet, cheering and laughing and high-fiving one another and grinning all over the faces. They were just absolutely delighted. And now this woman's frightened. She's really frightened. I said, see, they don't want to get even with all of us. They want to get even. Every one of them knows one or two that they want to get even with. Now, if you want to be treated fairly in the future... Treat people fairly in the present so that you aren't one of the one or two they want to get even with. Do you understand that? She went, yes. And the, I said to the group, you think that's a good idea? Yeah, they all thought that sounded pretty sensible, pretty sane by George. And Angela Davis at that point turned her chair so that she could look at me instead of looking at the crowd. I think she was wanted to be sure I wasn't going to come after her. I'm really <laughs> angry. I'm, I used to be a sweet little old lady. No, I was not, but I was sweeter than I am now. Yeah. But I have been doing this exercise with people of all ages, all over the United States and in some other countries. And I get the same response to everything that I say and everything that I do, no matter where I do it. It's been 52 now, years, you have Jane. To explain to me. 52 years. Now, you have to. I'm sorry, 52 years. I started in 1968, yeah. the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. Yeah. 52 years. It's a long and they time. invited me to do the Johnny Carson show after my kids wrote essays about what had happened to them. And somebody sent them to the Johnny Carson show. So they invited me, invited me to do the Johnny Carson show 52 years ago. Last week, they asked me to come in and do the Jimmy Kimmel show, yeah. which is in the studio the Johnny Carson show was in. Oh, man. I didn't go in. I did it on, on you know, on, on the, I Zoomed it. But yeah. 52 years later, for God's sake, and we're still in the same situation we were 
52 years ago. Well, this is the now, thing. This, how do you, how do you, people, I don't know what will. How do you, how do you personally keep doing this work? I mean, that's, that's one important question that I have for you. How and why do you keep doing this work? What possesses you to get up and keep doing it? That's your entire life. Oh, no, it's not. I'm 86 years old. Oh, God. That's only 33 years of my life. It's, that's only 33 years of my life. That's just a little over, that's, that's not even half of my life. Think about this. You have you have dealt with it your whole life. Yes, I have. I bet you're more than thirty-three years old. Yeah, I'll bet you're more than forty-five years old. I've been. I'm not going to guess any farther. I'll bet you have dealt with this all of your life. What What makes you keep going? Is I don't have. I don't have a choice, going? Jane. I don't have a choice. See, therein lies the rub. See, therein lies the rub. You don't yeah. have a choice. Right. I, I have it, but I don't have a choice either. After the first time I did that exercise with my third graders, yeah. and watched what expectations do to kids and watch what telling them they're superior or telling them they're inferior does to little nine-year-old kids for one day what in the name of god makes us able to justify doing that to a whole group of people for a lifetime the reason i keep doing it is because they keep doing it as long as the racists keep on i'll keep on you want me to stop stop the racist behaviors and now somebody's going to say, well, what about the interconnection, interconnectedness of racism and sexism? And I say, wait a damn minute. Until black women are treated as well as white women are treated on a daily basis, don't talk to me about the women's movement. Because the women's movement was allowed to succeed in this country because they needed something to slow down the civil rights movement. So white women step forward and their white males help them to step forward and start the women's movement. Now, in the 50s and 60s, 60s and 70s, when that thing started, I know it started long before that, but it went underground. Nobody was doing anything about it until the civil rights movement. And then here come the white women. They might as well have been wearing signs that said no blacks need apply because black women have not been the major beneficiaries of affirmative action policies in this country. White women have been the major beneficiaries of affirmative action policies. And yet you hear people complaining about affirmative action. They need to complain about who's really getting it, and it is not mainly our black population. Now, you know, you're, you're going to have some angry students who are going to argue with me about those things, and you need to tell them, go ahead, I've listed, I know what I'm talking about, this is what's going on. And then if they still don't believe it, if they still don't believe that they're that they're teaching racism in the schools in your country, get a picture of the, the map that hangs on your wall, map of the world. Get a picture in your mind of the map of the world. You see that Greenland hanging down in the middle of that map, like yeah. a great big red plum? Yeah. Yeah, well, you see, that map was made by Mercator in the 1600s. And you need to know that according to what I've read, Mercator was commissioned by the Pope to make a map that showed the spread of Christianity. Now, if you look carefully at that map, you'll see that here's Greenland hanging down the middle, like great big red thing hanging down the middle of that map. Right. Then you go to, and which most teachers don't do, you go to the legend at the bottom of the map. The last sentence on that legend says, South America is actually nine times larger than Greenland. Did you know that? Of course. Have you ever read that? Have you ever read that legend? I have seen it. See, most teachers, yeah, well, most teachers don't read it. 
And if you're going to teach, students are going to be taught, and as teachers, they are going to be teaching children that the equator is an imaginary line around the outside of the Earth, halfway between the North Pole and the South Pole, right? Right. It divides the Earth into two equal parts. Northern hemisphere, because heavy means half. Southern hemisphere, because heavy means half, no matter where you put it. You find the map on the Mercator projection. You'll find out that it is two-thirds of the way down the map. It doesn't divide the map into two equal pieces. And, of course, cartographers say, you can't help it. You have to have that. You have that problem because of the curvature of the Earth. That is Barnard. Here is the Peters projection map. Are you familiar with this map? I'm not. This is, this is the Peters projection map. Find Greenland on this map. See, it's clear up here. See that little tiny thing? Yeah. That's the size of Greenland. And yeah. look at South America. That's the size of South America. You see, we have been led to consistently and for the purpose of keeping some people up and some people down. This map is extremely important. The equator in this, on this map is halfway between the North Pole and the South Pole, which is where it belongs. Now, you're going to have kids who will say, well, I don't think that's right. That's not what my teacher said. Look, people, teachers have the same problem that everybody else has. They don't know what the hell they're talking about sometimes. <laughs> now, this is a map. Sorry, but I tend to be a little cross about educators because I'm not a teacher. I'm an educator. I agree with and you. The word educator. Yeah, the word I call it the same. The word same comes what? No, they're not the same. No, 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 no. I no, no, no. I say the same. I say the same. I don't call myself a teacher. Okay, so I don't have to wonder. I don't have to. No, you do. You should. You should. Okay. All right. The word educator comes from the root duck dukes d u c d u c e, which means lead. The prefix e, which means out. The suffix ate, which means the act of, and the suffix or, which means one who does. An educator is one who is engaged in the act of leading people out of ignorance. You can't lead people out of ignorance if you are teaching that Columbus discovered America. Because you can't discover a place where people are already living. They discovered it before you got there. And both Columbus and the people he discovered were descendants of the first modern human beings who lived on this earth and they were black. So there is a whole mess of stuff we have to clear up in order to re-educate educators. Educators will tell the same lies that they have been taught because you can't teach what you don't know. So they just repeat, repeat, repeat what they what they learned in kindergarten when they're when they've got their master's degree, their doctor's degree and several more doctor's degrees, they're still believing the crap that they learned in kindergarten now. Just to show you the difference, this is a map of Africa. Yep. The country of Africa. You could put the United States, Argentina, India, Europe, and China all in the continent of Africa. On that, in that continent, that continent is so huge that it could hold all those others. Now, how do you, how do you justify saying that the people who came from that continent and managed to populate every other landmass on the face of the earth aren't smart. How can you condition them to believe that they aren't as good as, that they aren't as wise as, they aren't as creative as, they aren't as intelligent as people with fairer skin, lighter skin. Tell me how you do that, and I'll tell you how you do that. You do that by practicing instead of education, 
You practice indoctrination. You teach them that these are the things that we need for you to, to you to for you to believe in order for you to be a good U.S. citizen. And we don't even call this the U.S. anymore. We call it America. We call this country America, as if only the 48 contiguous states, Alaska, Hawaii, and the islands on the southeast edge of the United States in that in the ocean, as if that constitutes all of America. You've got to tell people that America is everything from the northernmost most point of Canada to the southernmost point of South America. Those are the Americas. This is all America, not just this little piece right here. We've got to get that into students' heads because in this country, when any president finishes his remarks, he says, God bless you and God bless America. No! God bless the United States of America because you can't say God bless America and then build a wall on the southern border of the United States to keep people who aren't Americans out. Are you see how ridiculous this whole thing is? Oh, of is? course I do. I just wanted Jane Elliott to say it so that I can just push the button and sit back. Of course. Of course I do. But I you just sit back and watch them think, how, where did that old bat come from? <laughs> I'll tell you where it came from. Yes, please do. Tell us. From a father who would say, believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. Now, if he was watching television at this point, he'd say, believe none of what you hear and none of what you see. Yeah. He would also say, if you go, if go, if you go to bed at night and you haven't learned something new that day, don't go to bed until you pick up a book and learn something new. So every day I have to think, what have I learned today that I didn't know yesterday? And I find a book that has something in it may not mean anything at all. But if I start to read it, I can't put it down. And then you think, Dad, damn it, why did you say that to me? And why is it still ringing in my ears? I can't go to bed unless I've learned something new. I'm ha- I've had 86 years of being afraid to go to sleep before I learned something new. Because he's going to be there saying, what'd you learn today? What'd you learn today? What'd you learn today? So speaking got- of your of your father and where you grew up, it's, it's Riceville. Please tell the people in the Netherlands about Riceville. What was it like? Uh, what happened after you started doing your work? We need to know this. Oh, Riceville is a, is a town of a, a thousand people, population of a thousand. It was. Now it's down to 800 and some. And I think there are eight or nine Christian churches in Riceville. When I was a kid, there was one Jewish person there, but he was okay because he ran a grocery store and he'd give you groceries on credit and you could come back and pay them when you could afford it. But he, but he was a good Jewish man, so that was okay. There were no people of color because they didn't. They all consider us, us to be all white. And people, the main problem for Riceville is that everybody leaves. All the young people leave. The minute they, they uh, get out of high school, they leave. Because it's a farming community, and now it's extremely expensive to go into farming as a young person. So if your parents didn't have a farm, you'd have to go someplace else and find another job. Okay. Very bright people come out of Riceville. But I say bright people because they come out. <laughs> to stay there, people say to me, where did you grow up? In Riceville? I say, no, I grew older in Riceville. I grew up when I left there. Because you are not encouraged to grow up in these small towns. You're encouraged to remain as you are. And that's what many people in Riceville do. And they are accepted because they go along to get along. And okay. I wasn't accepted because I wouldn't go along to get along, particularly after I did the exercise, even though my great-great-grandfather 
My great-grandfather was one of the first settlers there. And my grandfather sold the school, the land on which the high school was built, and the land on which the, the uh, football field was started. Because he had money, and he'd been there a long time. And then <laughs> along comes my father, and has seven children, and lives on a hard gravel farm at four and a half miles from town, and raised had seven children, raised six, and we were all quite bright, but we were those those ridiculous Jenison brats because we didn't know our place. We didn't keep our place well enough, and that's what people said about me after I did the exercise and it got on television. She's getting too Jane Elliott's getting too big for her britches, and I thought. Well, yeah, but I've, just because I've gained a lot of weight, I, yeah, I know I'm getting too big for my bridges. I'll buy some new bridges. But, you know, it just, it, it just reached, it's reached a ridiculous point. I would walk through the halls and I would hear whispers as I went by. I'd walk by past teachers, you know, past, I'd walk past groups of teachers visiting. And as I walked by, all, all conversations stopped. But then I'd hear behind me and I'd hear my name every once in a while. And I'd think, well, they may not be talking to me, but they're sure talking about me. How do you live with that kind of exactly, pressure? That's how do, exactly how do you, what happens with blacks. Well, how do, but how do you live with that kind of pressure? And were you ever concerned for your life? Because we know how these situations go, generally speaking. <laughs> I've been hit by a white male during that exercise. I've had a knife pulled on me by an adult white male during that exercise. Except, you see, people who are behaving in those ways haven't gotten into the adult ego state yet. That's part of the problem for racism. You have three ego states, child, parent, and adult. And if you get into your adult ego state, you give up all childish dreams that you learned and from the time you were born. But if you don't get past the parent ego state, then you never get become a real adult. And I realized after a few years of learning a little bit about transactional analysis that the people who were opposed to me hadn't progressed into their adult ego state. And so I was dealing with children. And when you do the exercise, you have to be in your parent ego state. And those people in the exercise then have no choice but to become childlike. It's just amazing to watch adults in the exercise act exactly the way my third graders did. And every time I do the exercise with adults, the blue-eyed adults in the room, male and female, gay, lesbian, whatever they are, act like my third graders do. And when I do the exercise, if there is someone there who is gay or lesbian, or one but one of the LGBTQ group, I turn their eyes brown immediately because they already have had the abuse. They don't need any more. Mm. They know how the abuse feels. They have the right to have the, a chance to be on top one time if that's all they get so that they'll know exactly what's going on in the minds of those who are abusing them because of our ignorance about somebody else's sex life. So okay. I, if there's a, somebody with, in that group, if I can identify them, and I can't always but I can many times, and I put those that group, those members of that group, in the brown-eyed group to be on the top that day because they've already been on the bottom. They don't need to be there anymore. Right, I understand. And I keep doing, I keep doing it because racists keep doing it. If racists would stop, I would stop. You want to shut me up? Shut up. It's as simple as that. If you want me not to do this anymore, don't do racist. Don't do what you're doing anymore. That's a simple, logical way to deal with a problem. So in terms of, of what you're saying and the, the work that you're going, obviously, to continue doing, you've paid a very high cost, but so has your family, I would imagine. 
depends on what you call a high cost. Uh. Um, I lost all my friends. My husband lost all his manly attributes because they're quite certain that he couldn't control his wife. And he would say to people, you can't control your wife. Why can't you control your wife? And he said, he'd say, you try to control her. You try that. That'll be interesting. And then they wouldn't say that to him again. My parents lost their business, but they have a farm, 160 acres of farm. And, and my husband and I had purchased the hotel, so they didn't have to feed people in the hotel, but they can still live in it. And so they, they didn't, uh, they lost that business, but that was hard work. Running a dining, running a coffee shop in a dining area is hard work, and they didn't have to do that anymore. People thought they had done them a real disservice by not going in there to eat. And my father said, "Let the sons of bitches eat someplace else." I never did want to wait on them, which is not very Christian. But you know, if when it's happening, you have to say to yourself, "Now I can be destroyed by this, or I can find out something good good in this." And that's what he did, and that's what I did. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't part of their hall conferences and they didn't invite me to coffee after school down in their classrooms and I thought well uh, I don't have to listen to their racist sexist ageist homophobic remarks if I'm not included in their conferences and if I don't have to drink their coffee and their donuts I won't gain as much weight so you, you just have to you just have to turn it around so you don't have to be bothered by it and I'd go back I'd go up to my folks house at night sometimes after school and tell my dad but some of the ugly things that had happened during the day, and he'd say, just smile a lot, smile a lot, and they'll wonder what the hell you've been up to. And I'd smile a lot, and I'd hum as I went down the hall, and I'd figure if I could hum, remember the words of the song that I was humming, I'd sing a little. And it just, it just, um, you get to be, you get to be real thick-sided, thick, thick-skinned. Yeah. I became extremely thick-skinned. And so when the other third-grade teacher, who hated me with a passion, uh, I found out she had breast cancer. I didn't feel sorry for her. And I thought, oh my God, look what you've done to yourself. You've dehumanized yourself. You don't even feel sorry for somebody who's dying. Oh, and I one day yeah. I was teaching, yeah. I, I moved up to the junior high after several years. Sure. And while I was teaching at the elementary level, every night when I drive home after we moved to, to Osage, I drive back and forth every day. Every night while I was driving home, I would imagine one of those women in front of my car, and I'd, I'd accelerate and hit her and kill her in my mind, which is crazy, except... <laughs> you, you this is not good, murder, Jane. If you do mental murder, you're, you're less likely to do the real thing, you see. This so is not good. Down to the, one, yeah, one day I went down to the, the uh, elementary building for a meeting, a teacher's meeting, and there was the person that I'd been hitting with my car every night, and I looked at her and I thought... Why are you still here? I thought I'd killed you. And then I thought, oh, Jane, my God, you've gone over the, you've gone off the deep end here. But there that woman stood. She didn't know she was dead. <laughs> and then I, and then I had to laugh because she had no idea how amazed I was that she was in such good shape after being hit by my car so often. <laughs> but, you know, you this is to, not good. You know, no, it's not good. It's not good at all. It wasn't good at all. No, that's not but healthy. On the other hand, what? That's not healthy. And no, it wasn't help. But you see, who was more who was more unhealthy? The one who hated me so because I said it's all right not to be white? Or me, who instead of getting upset about it, just committed mental, mental murder? I've never, never even heard, heard of that, murder. but that's an interesting concept. I've never even heard of mental murder. Well, <laughs> if you do it, I'm sure that it's something I came up with and people like me come up with to 
to protect themselves from the ugliness of yeah. what's happening to them. Sure. And you can either do that and have, and think you might be crazy, or you can go to pieces and end up in a, in a psych ward somewhere yeah. or on a psychologist, you know, couch. Yeah. Or taking pills. Sure. And I didn't figure I needed pills to control what was going on with me. And I knew they couldn't control me. And I think that's what people have to learn. You are not what people say you are. You are what you know you are. And I would say to my students today, and I said to them, do not let somebody else define you. You know how good you are. You do the very best you can. And it doesn't matter what other people think about you. What matters is what you do. If they disapprove of it, it means that you're rocking their boat. Rock their boat. Refuse to just go along to get along. If, you know, Frederick Douglass said, power exceeds nothing without demand. Find out what any people will put up with, will, will uh, I don't remember the exact words, but find out what any people will put up with and they will be, it will be inflicted on them until they, it is resisted with either words or blows or with both. Everybody needs to look up Frederick Douglass and find that quote. Because if, if, I, hadn't, if I hadn't heard that and said that and read that and seen that mm-hmm. so often, I, would, I, couldn't have, I couldn't have lived through that nonsense. I would have given up and said, I was wrong. I'm never going to do this again. But no, you read Frederick Douglass's words and then you think, fools, you think you've gotten this solved. You think you're going to shut me up. You're not going to shut me up because I believed I was right. And that my dad, I was telling my dad what I was doing one day about the exercise. And he said, you're sure you're right? I said, yes. He said, then by God, go ahead. If you're sure you're right, go ahead. And my mother was saying, Jane, in fact, after my father died, she kicked me out of the family because she said, nobody's comfortable when you're over here. When you're around, don't come over here anymore. And she said, you've embarrassed us. You've ruined our reputation in this community with that blue, blue eye, brown eye thing. Well, I thought, gee, it's only a, a community of a thousand people. How bad could that be? But it was very bad for her. But my father, they must have had some really uh, strong arguments about that because he said, I've, I've heard him say, Margaret, leave her alone. She's doing the right thing, goddammit. So my mother would throw her head up in the air and go in the other room. And my father and I would sit there and talk about what I'd learned that day or what I taught that day or what I found out that day or what I experienced that day because he found it very important especially after the second, the second year I did the exercise, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation filmed it. And they sent me a copy of that film. So I took it in a, a, you know, a projector up to the, up to the church, the hotel where my folks lived. And I showed that film just to my mother and my father. My father was probably 59 years old at that time. He had lost a child when I was 10 years old. My little three-year-old sister died, and she was the love of his life. And he had raised, but he had raised six. And there he sat in that town in Riceville, Iowa, where his great-grandfather was one of the first settlers. And he watched that film. And I hadn't seen him cry since my little sister died, because he, he was a stern and stoic man. And when that film was over, he stood up. He took his red handkerchief out of the back pocket of his bib overalls. He blew his nose. He wiped his eyes. And he said, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. Now, anybody... And when I think about it, I get, you know, I turn into a soup sandwich because that man realized what most people don't realize, that if you don't learn the truth when you're young, 
you live the lie for a lifetime. And if you're one of the purveyors of the lie, you can get away with it. But if you're on the receiving end of the lie, then that becomes your life and your life lives the lie. And he recognized that. And after that, he would not listen to any racist jokes, didn't find them amusing after that. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he would leave the room or he'd say, are you going to tell that story? And if the person started to tell it, went on with it, he'd get up and walk out. Didn't make a big thing of it. But when my father walked away, you knew that he took something out of that room that you wanted to be there. What, what do we do now, Jane? Look at us now. That's what I said to you in my email. Look at us with George Floyd. It, it, it made the world got set on fire, like literally. What, what do we do now? We're going to do things. Here's what, here are just two other things you can do. Mm. Number one, get a new map in your classroom. Every classroom should have this map instead of the old one because of the in, inadequacies and the inaccuracies of the other one. Don't give me that nonsense about, well, that's just the problem that. Then we've got to educate. We've got to educate our educators. We've got to start start telling the truth. Here's one of the ways you can do that. Get this National Geographic magazine for April of 2018. You see those two girls? Mm-hmm. Those are twin girls. Okay. Now, are they biracial? No, they aren't biracial. There's only one race. They are members of the same race. We've got to take the language out of the classroom. We've got to change our language. Words are the most powerful weapon devised by humankind. We use them to destroy people all day, every day. Get this magazine. Turn to these pages. Three pages in this magazine that shook, that are came off these are from the Pantone color wheel. Mm-hmm. Every person can find his or her color on the Pantone color wheel. Find your color uh, color. Find your number on the color wheel. And then put that number in your mind instead of thinking you're white or black or brown. Put that number in your mind. We are all shades of brown, very, very dark brown or very, very light brown. None of us are white. Then read, look at this page in this magazine. Just look at this single page. That's a picture of the face of the earth and shows you where human beings started and where they moved from there to populate every landmass on the face of the earth. This is what it's all about. This is the fact that we are all members of the same race. We've got to take words like biracial and multiracial and racial groups. Oh, the the newscasters on the news, on the television are saying today and every day. Oh, that there are many races in that group. There are not many races in that group. There's only one race in that group. But if you hear that over and over and over, it nails down the myth, and it isn't a myth. A myth is something you make up to explain something in nature that you don't understand. You make up a story. Like the Greeks believed that the sun was a god that went across the sky in a golden chariot every morning. For thousands of years, they believed that. It was a myth. A lie is something you make up to justify your ungodly behaviors. And that's what the idea of race is. It's a lie that we made up during the Spanish Inquisition. Torquemada and company made up that lie because they found out that they had killed a whole bunch of Christians while they were trying to convert people to Christianity. They had killed a whole bunch of Christians. They found out you couldn't tell what a person's religion was by looking at them. So they had to find another way to determine 
who should die, and they set upon skin color. It is that recent, and it is that foolish, and it is that ugly. And people need to learn the history of that before they start telling people that there are four or five different races. We have to educate ourselves. Get this book. Sapiens by Harari. This book tells you how it tells you how human beings came to be, and it says we're all the same race. Then get the book, The Myth of Race, by Robert Wald Sussman. It is the, one of the most important books you'll ever read because he says absolutely there's only one race on the face of the earth, and we are all members of it. And he tells how we got this idea, this so-called myth of racism started. Then, if you're going to be a teacher, for the love of God, get this book. It's called The Racist, The Racial Conditioning of Our Children. And the author's name is Nathan Rutstein. And the subtitle of this is Ending Psychological Genocide in the Schools. Hmm. You read this book and you'll understand what psychological genocide really is and what's happening in the schools in your country and mine. Okay. He is. He is. Uh, he was from New Zealand. That's okay. the most. That's absolutely the most important book I ever read, where education is concerned. The things he says in that book. Now he's a Baha'i. I, I think Baha'is have the right answer, but you don't have to worry about the Baha'i things that are in the book. Read the psychology that's in that book and the and the ungodly things that we do in the name of education, then you don't have to know this because you are in the United States. But in the United States, the same thing is happening in the United States is happening in your country. Mm-hmm. Read this book and you'll realize that the segregation in this country was not the result of people wanting to be like others, only like people like themselves. It is segregation that is de jure segregation put in place by lawmakers who really believed in the lie of several different races. So they wrote laws that would make it, that would support the myth of race. You need to realize they didn't know any better than to write those laws. But now they should know better by now, and they're still writing those same kinds of laws. They're still writing segregating laws. We need to realize that people who call themselves educated in this country aren't really as educated as they say they are. They are schooled. There's a big difference between being schooled and being educated. That's just some of the things you can do. Decide not, oh, here's something you need. If you're going to teach, if you're going to have children of your own, I do. teach little children of any kind, get this book, The Color of Man. Okay. The Color of Man. Okay. It is absolutely wonderful. It has pictures of all kinds of children, all kinds of color groups, only one race. Those are all one race. All the kids in those colors are one race. Human race. They are not members of the black race or the brown race or the yellow race or the red race. They are members of the human race. It's time to get that idea into our kids and into our teachers and into our parents. We can change this thing around in one, well, in two generations. We can change this thing around in two generations. If we would all refuse to refuse to help anybody say to me, well, I'm biracial. When somebody says to me, I'm biracial, I say, really? Which of your parents came from outer space? You know what I mean? I say, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You think that there's two different races. You're only one race. I'd like for you to realize you might want to call yourself bicolored if you want to, but don't call yourself biracial. And and I, some woman 
every time I am with a group, some woman says to me, because she wants to be accepted, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. And I say, really, I knew that before you said it, because if you saw color, you wouldn't wear that shirt with those pants. <laughs> and then they guess, she gets all offended. You know what I'm saying. I say, I know exactly what you're saying. What you're saying to me is, you refuse to see the largest Course piece on my body, largest organ on my body, which inch by inch, which is my skin. You have to deny that in order to relate to somebody who's a different color. Well, that's not what I'm saying. And I say, look, doesn't mean doesn't matter what you meant by what you said. What matters is how it is perceived. Now, if you're going to say something and it can be perceived racist, shut up, cut the duck up right now. And she, oh, oh. Look, I didn't say something nasty. You you interpret it as nasty. Just cut the duck up when you're... Before you... I've got a sweatshirt on which it says, never miss an opportunity to shut up. And that's what people should do who don't know what to say. Just shut up. And then you can't say anything ugly. But if you don't know what to say to people of color, you need to go to my website and download the printed learning materials that are there. The first is a set of typical statements that white folks make. Go through those, check those that you have heard or that you would agree with. Then go to the next page, which is clarifications of those statements. Boy, you ought not to be saying them. Then, the, then somebody will say, well, you brought us a lot of problems, you didn't bring us any solutions. Here's a solution. Go to the third page. It is a set of commitments to combat racism. Go through that list, check yes, those that you've done, Check no those that you haven't done. Go back later. Circle one that you check no. Put the date beside it and do it for a month. At the end of the month, take that paper out. Make some notes to yourself about what you learned and what difference that made for you. And then choose another one that you check no. You can choose the level of your own racism. And by choosing the level of your own, changing your own racism, you'll change the racism in people around you and in your newscasters and in your... In your illustrators of your textbooks, you'll finally have somebody in positions of power in your textbooks that aren't white males. Think about that. Think about what our children see in kindergarten. Here's another thing. If I were teaching preschool or kindergarten today, I would get a box of Crayola crayons or whatever, whoever makes your crayons. And I would take out that white crayon and I would teach them colors. And I'd say, boys and girls, this is white. I want you to hold it against your hand. And then I want to see their faces light up because they're going to say, my skin isn't white. And I'd say, that's right, it's not. But there's a color in this box of crayons that will come closer to your skin color than that white crayon is. Now, Crayola Crayon has put out a box of crayons that has 18 or 30 some different colors, shades of brown in it. Get a copy, get a, get a box of those crayons if you're going to be a teacher. Take that box to school with you. And teach them the colors. Here's here's a beige color. Here's a bronze color. Here's a tawny color. Here's a suede color. Here's a, yeah. We can wipe out the idea of the rightness of whiteness by the way we educate. No kid in your school is white. I don't care how blonde they are. They still have melanin in their skin and their eyes and their hair. And they have the right to know that we're all members of the same race and we come in shades of brown. And if, if all else fails, go to the thesaurus and look up synonyms for brown. Oh my God. About a hundred. 
Now, somewhere in those synonyms for brown is every person's skin color. You just have to find it. Does that make sense to you? It does make sense. And, you know, um, I teach 18 to 35-year-olds, but the biggest issue I have is is my colleagues. I'm, I do workshops also on what we call diversity and inclusivity, if you will. And they're coming around now, but they are very, very difficult to sort of crack for all sorts of different reasons. And I've asked them what those reasons are. Mostly it's fear of saying the wrong thing or having people who don't look like them come into the university and shift the status quo, all those kinds of things. They're coming around now, but it's gonna happen. that's difficult for them. It's going to happen. Get used to it. Get used to it and realize that those are everyone, you and everybody else on the face of the earth is my 30th to 50th cousin. Now, I have some cousins that I don't like, but it's not because of the color of their skin. It's because, as Martin Luther King Jr. would say, because of the content of their character and because of their attitude and their behaviors has nothing to do with skin color. Yeah. And if, if you could imagine, imagine how we would, well, think about how we described our explorers sure. and discoverers, and they were all white males. Give me a break. They weren't even white males. They were people who were members of my race, the human race, who have the same ancestors that I have, and they weren't white. So let's start celebrating the brilliance of those people who put us where we are and who are our, we are all descendants of the first, those first modern human beings. Unless, unless you are, well, some, within several thousand years after Homo sapiens appeared on the earth, most of Neanderthal, Java man, and Peking man had disappeared from the face of the earth. However, some of them made it with those Homo sapiens which is why you will find people with abdominal, abdominal weight, not really great vocabularies, tend to be bullish and bullying, and have orange hair. Hmm. Now, can you think of anybody that you've seen lately who looks like that? Jane Elliott? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> I'm not gonna, That's good. That's a good idea. I'm not going to answer idea. that question. I'm certainly glad you are. I'm but not. you need to realize that that some people who are, and I have friends, a friend in California who says her uncle, her uncle, her aunt or somebody is Neanderthal. And uh. I say, and I think I can describe them. And she said, well, that's exactly what he looks like. And yeah, okay, well, I've, I've seen a lot of that in the United States. So I understand. And she says, he's a nice guy. But I say, yeah, I, I understand that too. But you see, if you stop and think, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Some of those who mated with Homo sapiens, they lost everything except some of their characteristics. And that's a fact. But the vast majority of us are descendants of those Homo sapiens. Most of the Neanderthals disappeared, but some of, some of the, there are pieces of them left here and there. They're probably nice guys. Well, here's, here's the thing. I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll answer your your question with a question, and it's a big question. Where where do we go from here in the United States? I am a citizen of the United States. I am African American. That is my country. My entire family lives there, except I'm here with my son, my daughter, and my husband. But my my family lives there. My sisters and brothers. 
I, I have no words for what I see on television these days. And I don't know. I'm busy now. I have to be back later. Bye. I don't know what your your thoughts are on George Eliot and where we go from here. And I don't know what to say. What could you tell me? What are, What are your thoughts? You've seen more of the world than I have. I think you have. I think you have to follow those young people out into the street. I think you have to do what Frederick Douglass said to do. Do not go along to get along. Do not allow people to step on you because they say you're wrong when they are you're wrong when in fact they are doing wrong do not tolerate that ugliness Ellie Diesel said you must not tolerate the intolerable if it's intolerable for you it's intolerable for me I will not tolerate it if I allow it if I tolerate that that means that I'm as guilty as those who are doing it are if I just turn my back and walk away I haven't made a difference that's not what I was put on this earth to do just to be a cipher. I'm not just a, a number in a sheet of, on a sheet of numerals. That's not what I am. And that's not what you are. And that's not what your children are. And that's not the way they must be seen. Do not allow somebody else to identify you or any other person on the face of the earth. We are all human beings. We have the right to be treated fairly. Now, I don't think that you and I are equal. I'll never be as tall as you are. I'll bet you're over 5'1". I am. How I'll do you never, know? How do you know? I'll never be... I'll never, yeah, I'll never be as young as you. I'll bet you're younger than 86. I am I'll never today. be as strong as you are. I'll never know as much as you know about racism. I will never be your equal, but I am not guaranteed equality. I'm equal, equal only in the eyes of God. I am guaranteed equal treatment under the law, and I want equal treatment under the law, period. I demand that. I have a right to demand that, and you have a right to demand that, and we together... People of all colors together can get together and insist that we get it. But the problem in my country, I don't know about yours, but in my country, the problem with racism is it's a moneymaker. It's a very lucrative decision to treat people unfairly on the basis of the color of their skin has been very good for people who want to make money. Think of it. If you are Walmart, you can hire people of color particularly for less money than you pay other people you can work them for fewer than 40 hours a week so you don't have to pay them any benefits or pay for their insurance you can fire them easily you can hire them easily you can fire them easily you can pay them very small wages so that they can't put enough money together to buy decent housing so then they end up in substandard housing and they're there near downtown so that they can get to their jobs because they can't afford automobiles, in many case, people in inner city can't afford automobiles, wouldn't have any place to park them anyway, can't afford the gas, we make that impossible for them. So we keep them in these, we, we ghettoize them, we don't want it, we hate that word ghetto, but that's what we do. And so, and, and we leave it that way until the people in the burbs, middle class people want to get into the town because the price of gas has gone up and okay, they want to get into the inner, inner city so then somebody buys up that property that all the, that substandard housing is on and pushes the people who are living in the substandard houses out and they have to find another place to live. We call it regentrification. But what it really is, is racism in action. And we're doing it all the time in this country right now. I don't know whether it's happening in your country, but I know what's happening here. They asked me to talk to a school group, a school 
in Washington, D.C. It was black until regentrification started. And now the black kids are feeling pushed out and left out, and the white teachers are coming in, and they aren't treating those black children the way they treat white children. So they asked me to come in and talk to the school. So I talked to the parents. First, I talked to the children during the daytime. Then I talked to the parents at night. And when I, while I was talking, they wheeled in an older black female and put her right at the end of the front row. I made my remarks. And after I was done, I was standing on the stage talking to a couple of people. And somebody came up and said, so-and-so wants to talk to you. I said, where is she? She's right down there. And she pointed at this black woman. I said, okay, I can get down there. So I went down and I said to her, hello, I'm Jane Elliott. I'm happy to meet you. She said, I said, uh, what can I do for you? She said, and she started crying. She's older than I am. Hmm. She started crying. She said, I've waited. I think she said, she isn't older than I am. She's 83. She said, I've aided, waited 83 years to hear somebody said what you said up there tonight. Nobody should have to wait 83 years to be told that they are part of the human race and they have a, as much right to be on this earth and to be fair, fairly treated as anybody else has. She's waited 83 years to hear what I had to say that night. How do you justify that? Well, you, there is no way to justify it. You don't. There is no justification. You don't. And you, call, you can't call it stupid because you can't fix stupid. But you can call it ignorant and you can fix ignorant with education. That's what educators are supposed to be doing. We could have we educated ourselves into this mess deliberately. Now it's time to educate ourselves out of it. This is 2020. This is time. We are we are way past due for educating ourselves out of this mess. I think that's a brilliant place to stop. Thank you so much, Jane Elliott. I, I really do appreciate this. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You are truly an icon at what you do. And we greatly appreciate your voice. Sincerely. I just need you to hear that. When you come back when you come back to the States for a visit, stop and see me. I will I would love to do that. It'd be an honor. Well, most most sincerely. Look me up when you come back to the States.